This is the Detroit Mercy Cybersecurity 313 Podcast. Hello, this is Tamara Shoemaker, the Director of the Center for Cybersecurity and Intelligence Studies at the University of Detroit Mercy. And I am extremely excited to have James Ratzlaff as our guest today. I've known James for the last six years as a mentor for the Cyber Patriot Program, but his official title at GE Power is Staff Cyber Security Architect. And I love his LinkedIn description of what that job is. And so I've got to share it with you. I don't normally do this. I usually make the guests introduce themselves, but I really want to do this. So he describes himself as revealing the value of good software by auditing the security of various platforms, doing red team and blue team exercises, and mentoring developers and scientists on approaching secure software development using philosophic reasoning based around discrete math. And that's the part that got me. The philosophical reasoning based around discrete math. So I actually had to go and look up what is philosophic reasoning. And the actual definition is relating to the study of basic ideas about knowledge, right and wrong, reasoning, and the value of things. And then the other piece was showing wisdom and calm when facing misfortune. And I thought, that is amazing, James. Please explain more. (laughs) Well, thanks for having me on here. So, yeah, I mean, the the basis of a lot of philosophy is true and false, right? And, uh, you know, having understanding the logical flow of things like, is this provably false or is it provably true, right? We have very basic things, and that's where the discrete mathematics part comes in. But we have things like axioms, right, where that's taken as a given. And a lot of security flaws are due to just logical errors. So making sure that, Folks are doing things that is provably true, depending on what outcome that they want to have. Breaking it down to that level, most people understand. So I'm able to actually guide folks in the right direction based on that. I think that the second definition of showing wisdom and calm when in the middle of misfortune, I think that that describes cybersecurity people like crazy, right? So you have to keep your head when all else is failing and things are going badly. I just thought that that was another really good piece of that description. It was like, yeah, that's exactly what would describe most of the people that are in this business, right? Yeah, you have to have a cool head because a lot of times people will say, oh, fire. And, you know, you can't freak out and say fire too. You got to put the fire out. (laughs) Right. To actually find out what the actual problem is. And you go about that with all kinds of different ways with your red teaming and your blue teaming and all that kind of stuff. James, what pathway did you get to come to this? I'll ask you a little bit later about what your job looks like, but how did you get where you are right now? Oh, man, I would say that starts probably all the way back to when I was two years old and I executed my first exploit where I managed to lock myself in an elevator at the University of Michigan Hospital, which where both my parents had worked at the time. They weren't married yet, but I guess my dad had to actually come and get me out of the elevator. I don't know how I did it, but I guess I did. But in all actuality, I think it really started um, because of my mom, really. She was a system administrator at the University of Michigan, and I learned, like, some of the basic concepts. I was very motivated by being able to play games on my computer, and also when I was at the university with her, like, for Take Your Child to Work Day or School is Closed Day, I wanted to be able to entertain myself, and she wanted the same thing. That way I wouldn't annoy her. So learning the command line. So that's uh, for all of you folks out there that are much younger, you probably haven't had to deal with the command line, but that's what is still used today in a lot of technical cases, but it was certainly used back in the day. 
to actually execute programs. So I learned that, and then she also administered the network, uh, at least on the first floor of U of M Transportation Research Institute. So understanding how networks are connected and what kind of configurations you needed, and also generally how to set up an email address. And once we got that at the school that I went to, um, after my parents had moved from Ann Arbor to Ypsilanti, I went to Lincoln High School, and each classroom, when I was in seventh grade, had a computer, and uh, I was just like, huh, I wonder if I can get email working for my teacher. So she logged in for me, and I just started trying to experiment to see if I could send my teacher an email. And this is in 1996, mind you. So this but you was, were trying to look behind the curtain on things and do things that weren't quite ready yet. Not quite at that point. Okay. Uh, okay. That's more toward high school. Gotcha. Okay. But I, I did eventually, I was able to send an email from my email to the teacher. I, I don't recall how I did that. Actually, no, I think I had my mom send an email to my teacher's email address so I could see it was working. But I actually called her at work. I'm like, hey, mom, I'm trying to set up my teacher's email. What do you think I should put in for the POP3 configuration? And for all you younger folks, don't even worry about that because we don't do that anymore. We don't have to worry about that kind of stuff. And I learned how to do simple customer support at that point. So having that skill to work with people and help them get something done was super valuable at that point. It was kind of my first intro. And I got to know who became the director of technology, who was my computer teacher at the time, uh, John McGee. He's since retired. He was the principal of Lincoln. But uh, as time moved on, I started doing more and more advanced things, especially because hardware became more advanced and actually a lot more accessible during that whole, I would say, 1996 up through 2001. Saw this huge drop in price for computers. I was lucky enough to have a computer or my own computer, not a shared family computer, I think, when I was 10. So since 1994 or 95. But having that stuff become more available, I got to do more advanced things. And I would sometimes have my friends come over and we'd bring our individual computer games over to our houses and play them. But we also thought it'd be so cool to make our own game. So we would try in basic to make our own game, which that even though that's the demo that it would come with, uh, it came with this like gorillas throwing bananas game that Bill Gates had written. I did not have that kind of programming skill. One thing I did want to do, though, is also play console games on a PC. And that's when I got into using emulators and started figuring out the details of like how these games work with these certain uh, architectures. So one of the things that I really liked doing was putting in cheat codes. I mean, back in the day, what kid didn't like cheating on those really hard games? So I learned what a debugger was and how to modify addresses in memory, which would sometimes crash the game and sometimes actually cause something to happen. So that was kind of my first hacking. I wrote a sprite viewer. So for all you folks that play modern consoles, sprites aren't really used that much anymore. Um, you have like polygons that are textured. But back in the day, we had sprites. That was the console's version of polygons back then. So I actually wrote a sprite viewer. So imagine being able to dump all the 3D models out of a video game. I wrote something that could get all the 2D graphics out. I think I was in eighth grade at the time, and I didn't write the complete thing from the ground up. I used somebody else's code, and their program didn't quite display it in the amount of colors it should have been displayed in, so I actually modified it to display it 
with uh, 256 colors instead of... What were you thinking then? What was your goal? I mean, I totally get, you know, I have a grandson. He loves his little cheat codes and doing all that kind of good stuff. But you actually wanted to get right into it, though, right? You wanted to get into that game and see how it ticked, right? Yep. That's exactly what I wanted to do because I thought it was so cool. I mean, if I have a cool idea for a video game, which I've never had a good idea looking back (laughs) at it. Most of my ideas were just like, that's not a game. That's just silly, basically. But uh, me wanting to at least have the ability to do something like entertain people or entertain myself with a computer, that's what was kind of my motivator for a lot of the things that I did. And knowing how a game worked, because both my brother and I, we played video games all the time when we were kids, um, knowing how it worked and how you can kind of exploit it, I guess you could say, was like, one of the things I just love doing. Which led you then to teaching yourself how to do some of this stuff, correct? I yeah. mean, that was an impetus for that. And looking back, that was an important thing, that you were that inquisitive about doing that. I mean, it's like somebody who doesn't know they want to be a mechanic or an engineer, but they start taking things apart all the time, physical things, right? You were doing that with the virtual stuff that you were seeing and working with and gaming with and stuff. And yep. so and that also, led you to know all this stuff that you now can use as an actual employment skill. Yeah, and now that I think about it, one of my big projects that, uh, speaking of taking stuff apart, if you ask my parents, they'll be like, oh, we spent so much money on that child because I took all the things apart. Like anything that I could get my hands on, I would take it apart and see how it worked. And 90% of the time, I couldn't get it back together. And there was one thing that I tried to do, and this was back in seventh grade. I wanted to make my own laser pointer, and I had an old CD-ROM drive, even though it wasn't old, and I think it was like our only CD-ROM drive in the house. And I wanted to get the laser diode out of there and turn it into a laser pointer, which I was successful at getting the laser diode out of there. But at the time, I didn't quite understand, like, maximum voltages that go through things. So I hooked a 9-volt battery, which I believe the laser diode is only supposed to go up to 5 maximum. And I connected it in there, and I was like, oh, I can see the laser. And then it faded away. And I'm like, hmm, I wonder if I broke it. (laughs) I definitely broke it. I guess looking back, your parents probably don't mind that you broke things and that you were so inquisitive because look what it's done for you as far as a career track. But, I mean, at the time, it was probably a little tiny bit frustrating. Oh, yeah. My, My dad, he actually prides himself on them kind of giving me the opportunity to do those things. And you said it exactly. At the time, they weren't exactly thrilled. Yeah. You know, money wasn't exact. My parents weren't making bank or anything like that. Right. No, not as teachers. That's not what happens. I, I understand that. We do that uh, here. So I got that part. So you started out a while back. You told me and some of the students that work in the Cyber Patriot piece, you told them about that you went into business pretty early in life as well. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Oh, yeah, school, yeah. Right? Well, so it was my sophomore year of high school. And my friend Brian came up to me and he was like, hey, James, we should change the teacher's desktop like the recycle bin, we should change the name to something funny or probably something completely inappropriate for this podcast. And I was like, okay, let's try it. So <laughs> I asked the teacher what her password was. And you know, most of the teachers have known that I'm, they would say I'm good with computers, right. right? So I go into the registry and we're hunting around to find the correct registry key. And for those of you that don't know what a registry is, that's kind of like the massive configuration file that Windows uses to do everything from, like, which program am I supposed to open when it's this file type, right? So we're in the registry, and I'm looking through, and I see a really 
odd registry entry. And I see that there's an entry that has another student's personal email address. I was like, why is this personal email address in here? Is our teacher emailing him? And so I asked the teacher, I was like, hey, Ms. Gonzalez, why is so-and-so's email address in here? And she's like, who did you say? I'm like, this person, because, you know, law enforcement actually got involved with this. And she was like, he's not supposed to be anywhere in there. This kid is a terror in my class. So it turned out the student had installed a remote administration program on the teacher's computer. It's called NetBus. I don't think that's used much anymore. So I found that that had been escalated all the way to, I believe, the superintendent and law enforcement got involved. The student almost got expelled. But what had happened was instead they said, "Okay, well, how about community service? So fast forward to the summer of that year. I had basically landed my first job because of that, kind of knowing how to navigate around these things. And I had shown even in the past that I had the skills to kind of work in IT. So actually, there was another student who I didn't know at the time had also assisted this student in doing this. And we actually ended up working together over the summer doing basic maintenance on the computers, you know, just getting them cleaned out, making sure that they're re-imaged, trying to make it more efficient to do such. And, um, yeah, that's that that was really my first IT job where I was paid and it was basically finding something that could have really been a much bigger issue, right? You don't want folks that aren't supposed to have access to your network or computer uh getting on there, especially remotely. So that's well, that was as someone in high school, that made quite an impression then with you as far as you were just sort of poking around. Like you said, you were maybe, you know, trying to maybe retitle something and you ended up finding out something a little bit more nefarious was going on in there just because you were in there poking around. Right. Right. At this point, I had actually had an experience with some of the, you know, shadier remote administration tools like uh, Sub7, for instance. That was a big one back then. And so I kind of had an idea of what was going on, uh, why this student had, had done that. So you knew at least once you saw it, what was going on. I got that. Yeah. So you were, you know, but again, it goes back to the sort of, you always want to try to look behind the veil, right? And try to figure out what yep. was going on. So you had some ideas about some of the stuff that the tools that people were using at the time and recognized it right away. And again, yep. you could have gone the wrong way and done something nefarious, but instead you actually, you know, blew the whistle and said, hey, whoa, whoa, this can't be done. Again, you were using that wisdom and calm in a situation where, you know, maybe others wouldn't have done it that way. We talk about that all the time in Cyber Patriot, right, James, about how just because you can doesn't mean you should. Exactly, yeah. You know, if you want to be employed and you want to stay nice and cozy in your own home and not have to, you know, wear an orange jumpsuit or something, those are things that are important that you do. But you got a really good start early on you were able to tinker with things and play with things and experiment and you know sort of be all you could be when you were trying to do all that stuff and then did you go to college did you continue your education and yeah um so I went to Eastern Michigan University semester after I graduated from high school and oddly enough I for some reason during my orientation I was on the women's swim team orientation group which was cool made a lot of friends in fact, my, uh, my running partner was on the swim and diving team, so, so I got to start networking immediately. I was given work-study, which for all of you prospective college students that haven't heard about this, certainly look into it because it allows you to work on campus and get paid for working, and a lot of times they always view you as a student before they view you as an employee. So 
unlike your real job career after college, you are encouraged to keep your grades up. Like they, most of the time, they will not allow you to let work get in the way of your studies. So most of the time, and I know it differs from school to school. I know at my wife's school that she went to, she went to Bryn Mawr. You had to work in the food courts when you started. I worked in the dean of students office when I started and actually using my software development skills to kind of automate a lot of the data entry in the office. But yeah, I started at EMU and I originally wanted to double major in music education and computer science. I'm a huge band nerd. I was in marching band all four years of high school, played saxophone, was drum major my last year. And in college, I did almost four years, uh, which we'll, we'll get to that story when we get there. But I did almost four years of marching band in college as well. I played saxophone for two years and I did drumline for almost two years. Your story is very artistic, right? I mean, being in band and in doing all that. And I think people kind of sometimes miss the point that the computer science and the things that you do are also very artistic, right? And so I can see how those two fit really, really nicely together. Yeah, you have to be really creative, especially if you get into the field of auditing security. You have to be very, very creative, whether you're doing machine pen testing or you're doing physical site pen testing. And For all of those that don't know, pen testing is short for penetration testing. So can I get into this thing? But yeah, you have to get creative and keeping that creativity going. It's one of those things that I know for sure when I started at General Electric, which is where I currently work, one of the executives, we had a roundtable with one of the executives and he explicitly said, I'm not just looking for software developers on this team. I'm looking for creative software developers. So I'm looking folks that not just have a computer science degree, but either have a hobby of like writing or playing music or have a degree in music. So actually one of my buddies that I went to EMU with, we ended up working together at multiple companies and I got him into GE. And that was like one of the huge sales for them when he did his interview was the fact that he also does guitar performance. That's heartwarming because they they take care of a lot of our infrastructure at GE. And so it's nice to know that they are forward thinking because that's not necessarily always the case with folks. When they're looking for folks to hire, they don't necessarily know that that's the kind of mindset that you're looking for. What does your day look like, James, when you actually when you go into work? You know, what is it like to be a pen tester and an auditor of software and and all that lovely good stuff that you have? So uh, the beginning of my day is obviously it's check my calendar and check my email. In fact, I check my calendar the night before to make sure that I wake up on time because a lot of the time I'm not just dealing with folks in the U.S., I would say more than 50% of the time I am dealing with teams in India. So there's a 10 and a half hour difference there. So their time, you can almost consider it the complete opposite of our time. So I begin with checking email, that kind of stuff. Um, going through tickets, we actually have just recently set up a workflow with actually getting my time because I'm on a, a relatively small team. So getting our time, we have to prioritize what we're going to do. So having a, this system really helps. So I look to see, okay, this person needs assistance with this, this person needs assistance with that. And I kind of prioritize it. Okay, is this something that's going to affect the overall company immediately? Like a critical vulnerability was found in this software, we need help with it. Or is it something that, hey, this thing is not working, where I can maybe send that over to somebody else that can assist them. So it kind of starts with that. And depending on what day of the week it is, kind of determines what I do. So... Monday, Wednesday, Fridays, I'm usually assisting developers in remediating security vulnerabilities in their software. So we do have scanning software, but it tells them 
what's wrong. It doesn't tell them how to fix how it. To fix so, it, right? Yeah, I guide the developers on how to fix it, and specifically, I try to get them to fix it with writing the least amount of code possible. Because the more code you introduce, you're adding what's known as a tax surface. So the more there is, the more that can potentially be penetrated. And uh, so I will guide them through that and also have them kind of tell the rest of their teams how to do that as well. Because chances are, if there's one sort of vulnerability, it's probably in 50 other places in the code. On Tuesdays and Thursdays, I work with our purple team. And what the purple team is, it's a mix between a blue team. So a blue team does defense with cybersecurity and a red team does offense. So our purple team does both. And uh, they're a really talented group that I get to work with where I provide a lot more of the assistance of knowing some of the technical background of an application and just being able to look right in the code. And that is if I'm not actually actively doing pen test work myself with them. So we do that. We get to legally hack into a company doing this, which is kind of fun. And it feels kind of cool to be able to do that. Because most people, if you attempt to do what we were doing, you'd have the FBI kicking down your door. Right. But you're doing it for the betterment of the project that you're working on, correct? Yeah, well, we're definitely not those people that just tells you everything wrong with you. That would be very demoralizing for people. We're there to help folks improve. Not only does it improve the individual developers, but it's definitely going to improve the company's security posture overall. Right. And it keeps right. the lights on. So Right. We talk about things being developed in kind of a vacuum without folks that are looking over their shoulder, that are thinking about the cybersecurity vulnerabilities and the things that can happen. And so you guys, again, it's pretty forward thinking that while it's being developed, you guys are already going after it and making sure that those things aren't there. And so, like you said, that does sound fun, though, for two days, you get to kind of do that kind of thing. So the other days, you're putting out some fires and taking care of the normal kind of everyday ordinary stuff. And then those other two days, you're working on some really cool stuff where you get to, you know, do that, the stuff that you used to do as a kid, right? Just sort of poking around and seeing what's going on, right? Yeah, the, the more complex part, though, that's coming up is we're really focusing on trying to automate a lot of this stuff. So instead of a team coming to me and saying, hey, I'm trying to remediate this vulnerability. I found it here in our code. I'm not sure how to fix it. We're trying to just catch that from the get-go. Some teams already have it, but we do have a lot of legacy applications that have source code that's 20 years old, that's existed since before I was even in college. So that kind of stuff, it's much harder to do that with because it simply existed since before I was at GE. So that's another thing where we're kind of working on, and that's becoming my day-to-day. And it's kind of defining what does that look like when it comes to saying you need X, Y, and Z in your documentation so we can do TVW. So the legacy thing is an issue all across the country, right? I mean, that yeah. that's a really big deal because, I mean, people got a lot of – Like you said, you know, computers didn't happen yesterday. They happened quite a while ago, and there's an awful lot of old stuff, old code, old ways of doing things that are kind of just been snapped on with the new stuff, right? It's not like we got a new slate every year and we have everything brand new. So you have all these things that are integrated with each other that have old things that people picked up somewhere along the line and started using it and didn't realize that it had anything wrong with it at the time. And then it's been being used for a really long time. And you can't just turn it off, turn it off, disconnect it, right? right? (laughs) But, I mean, I I like the idea that you're talking about how you guys are sort of trying to make it a little bit more systematic in your approach and repeatable and using a bit of IA, right? I mean, using a way of going at this maybe that's not all just brute strength with you guys, 
you physically having to do all that stuff because right. we can't clone you, James. I mean, you know, we, you know <laughs> it's going to be a while before your baby is old enough to be able to do this stuff. So we, <laughs> we want to oh, make man. sure that we're safe in all of that good stuff. So it's nice to know that you guys are trying to do all this stuff in a repeatable pattern and we use the technology to help us do this kind of thing from the development stage. And that's a really, really important thing. Many of the folks that we talk to are not down in the development stage, right? They're off doing, you know, the whole business security or, you know, much, much larger viewpoint of it. And so it's really cool to talk to you about sort of the actual inner workings of right down to the code level. Yeah. And I just want to put out there that GE itself, like a lot of our newer stuff, it already kind of has that in place because these are new projects. You can say, hey, you need to think security first. But back in 2000, that was not the top of the mind. And I'll get into this in a bit. But 2001 was the change of the U.S. in general. So our focus was put elsewhere, specifically September 11th. Everything pretty much had changed. So things were more focused on physical security at that point as opposed right. to cybersecurity. Yeah, things did change quite a bit. You and I talked in an email exchange about attitude changes and how you think some of those would benefit not only students, but also the U.S. as far as, yeah. you know, things that we come up against and the way that we actually handle it now and how maybe we should do it a little bit differently. Yeah, so aside from policy, I'll put it this way. So when I was about to graduate from EMU, I was invited to come out to D.C., went to the National Press Club, talked to all these important but like almost shadowy figures and ended up getting an interview at a company that does stuff for the government. Don't know exactly what they do because I needed top secret. So TS, SCI clearance. And there are a lot of things that they put on there that need to be changed. And I'm just going to leave it at that, like how they go about denying or accepting applications. That needs to certainly be overhauled and they need to get get with the times, folks. But when it comes to just general policy on use with computers, there's too much fear, absolutely too much fear. Back when I was in school, like, hey, you know, James isn't breaking anything, just let him do what he wants, right? Now, if a student happens to see a vulnerability, all of a sudden they're hacking stuff, which, no, that's not the case. They just discovered something that needs to be fixed. You should be happy about that, right? Right. So instead of punishing folks, even though I know a lot of the consequences for being a non-adult are way less harsh than if you were to do it as an adult. For both categories, we need to kind of say, hey, if there was no harm done, then just like take that as somebody doing you a favor. And there's a lot of companies doing that with their bug bounties. Bug bounties. That's right. That's right. That's one of the things for sure. But I get what you're saying, James, because I mean, think about it in retrospect. If you hadn't been allowed to just monkey with stuff and just find out and try you wouldn't have been in a place where you are now to be able to do that sort of now with your professional hat on and be doing that, right? But if people had kept you from doing that, and I get what you're saying. I mean, the whole politically correct thing, we're protecting kids, we're protecting our stuff, we're protecting, protecting. I mean, you and I both know we've had discussions with different school boards and school people about even Cyber Patriot, which is a national game Mm -hmm. that's done in a virtual space. And the first thing that people ask is, are you teaching them hacking, right? And will they be able to use the skills that they learn from you to do bad things? And number one, you can always use whatever skills you have to do bad things. No one can ever stop anybody from doing any of that stuff. But what we are trying to do is we are trying to train people so that they can take over for us when we retire, right? When we need all this help. 
And so it's not with a nefarious reason that we're doing this. And we want them to experiment. And we give them safe places to do it in, right? We give them the VM so they're in a virtual machine and doing whatever it is that they want to do. And then if they kill something, we just start over and reboot it, right? So it doesn't actually mess with anything that's actually physical. But again, if we're not allowed to experiment and we're not allowed to sort of push all the boundaries in our education and how we interact with the machine and stuff, we're going to kind of limit everything. And so that's, I think, the point you're making, right, is that if we box ourselves in too much, while we want to protect people from any of the hazards that are out there, and we want to keep them from bad stuff that they're doing on purpose to harm anybody, we still don't want to take the inquisitiveness piece out. We don't want to take that piece where they've got this drive to find out what's behind the curtain, what's new. Well, and they're also learning how to control the technology, right? My saying is, if you don't learn to control the technology, the technology is going to control you. And you don't want that. And right now, it seems like fear of breaking something is restricting a lot of things. Don't be afraid to break it. It's not physically broken. As long as it can be recovered, you're fine. And the fact that if there is a young person that's out there exploring and they're curious and they do find something, that's like somebody telling you, hey, your fly's unzipped. I'd rather somebody tell me that than me walk around all day with my fly unzipped because chances are that person's not the only one to see that. Right. Well, I mean, and that's why they've come up with the bug bounty, right? I mean, before, like you said, it was all about prosecuting somebody for poking around. And now industry has realized you've got a bunch of people looking at stuff. They're going to find some of the stuff that's vulnerable. And if you give them a reward for finding it and helping them, then, like you said, it's not going to be just that company that's protected, but probably many, many others are using that same thing. And now we know what the vulnerability is and we can go ahead and fix all of that stuff. But we wouldn't have been able to know that otherwise. If we only give these tools to the bad guys, which, you know, you can't control them, then we're shooting blanks. We don't have anything to work with, and they have all the ammunition. And so that's definitely not what we want. Again, we want to keep people safe. We want to make sure that they're doing things not to do any harm, that kind of thing. But like you said, breaking it isn't really doing harm or going out there and trying to destroy somebody's life or do something awful and mean and change their data or something like that. That's bad intent, right? But there's a difference. Can you explain that a little bit better since you're sort of in that mode? Yeah, so there's two parties, really. There's what's known as white hat and then there's black hat. So when it comes to doing black hat stuff, that is the things that will cause significant financial loss or actual physical harm to somebody Well, white hat is more of the getting out there and discovering stuff to prevent the black hat hackers from doing what they want to do. So going around and saying, oh, there's a security vulnerability here. Let me show you how this is vulnerable. Generally, that'll be done in a much more safer space. Like, let's say it won't be done on what's known as a production server. So production server. So if you were to, for example, go to Twitter.com, right, that's their production server. That's what everybody sees. Internally, they probably have what's known as a dev and a QA server. One is for the developers to try out the newest features and one's for the quality assurance folks to make sure those features work. So a lot of times this kind of testing is done on those internal servers, but sometimes they will bubble up to prod. And that's where you see these two parties meet is at the prod level. So the black hat hackers will attempt to exploit people's accounts. If you recall there, and I'll go back to Twitter again, There was that whole incident where a hacker got, well, I really wouldn't even call it hacking at this point, but social engineering. So basically lying to somebody to get access to something is definitely kind of part of the black hack thing. They were able to get access to an internal tool within Twitter 
that allowed them to make posts on somebody else's behalf. And in this case, it was saying, I'll donate Bitcoin if you go to this address, which was an attack essentially that anybody who went to that link was probably being exploited as well. So I was on uh, President Joe Biden's Twitter for crying out loud. So that would be considered black hat, even though it's a less nefarious black hat. An even worse scenario is I guess there was a hospital that had been infiltrated in Germany and there was... I think it was crypto malware. So what crypto malware will do, for those of you that don't know, it'll encrypt the contents of your hard drive or whatever storage device that you have. And you can't get it unencrypted until you send the hostage-taking party a certain amount of money. And usually it's in the form of cryptocurrency because that's hard to track. And in this case, I guess it prevented a device from working that had to do with like the harder lungs and somebody actually died from it. Those are the worst cases of black hat hacking. And generally, you'll have your blue team or purple team, and those are white hat hackers. They're not out to actually break or harm anything. So those are the folks that are there to actually find the holes and fix them. And a lot of these bug bounties are designed around that. What's nice is, you know, folks that find them, it's like, oh, good pen on the back. Thank you. No, you get paid for it, which is great. There's some incentive for people to actually find them whether or not they're in to help the company or just make money. So it's a win-win situation on both sides. Yeah, I'm real, real glad that they're doing those things now because in order for us to stay sort of a couple steps ahead of some of those black catters, you know, we have to have folks that are willing to use those skills for the good. And that's an awful lot what we're talking about when we're talking to these kids and all of your experiences with your teams as well, right? So all these folks that have these skills could be using them for nefarious reasons, but instead they're not. They're helping to protect our infrastructure. It's a good motivation for these bug bounty programs is money because almost 100% of the time, the motive for a black hat hacker is money. Right. So might as well do it the right way and give them money for finding stuff on your actual servers instead of you having to pay them money to fix things that they broke. Right. It's that old adage, the carrot or the stick, right? And so, like you said earlier, the stick has been used an awful lot in trying to punish people for you know stepping over the line or being where they don't belong. But it's truly been found out that the carrot is definitely more rewarding, right? You get more people involved and wanting to do it with honey than you do with vinegar, right? And there's whole communities out there that are working towards the good on that and the white hacking piece. I hear them call themselves white hackers. I hear them call themselves researchers. You know, you take your education and your skills in this area and companies pay you to go in there and poke around and find out where their vulnerabilities are so that someone bad can't do that. So that you can then help them fix it. And the cool part about what you're doing, too, is that you help to fix it. It's not just like, oh, those are vulnerability here. You're on your own. (laughs) You know, figure it out. (laughs) Yep. And that's exactly what I do with the purple team at GE. I'm not on the purple team. I just simply work with them. But they're a super great group to work with. But um, going back to what I said earlier about what schools can change, too, is so this goes back to 2006 through 2010. That's when everybody was beginning to get a phone. One thing that drove me nuts is when even some of my peers back when I was working in IT had a big issue with students using phones. Okay, I would not have gotten to where I was if I not have used what had been considered a distraction, the computer. Like a lot of parents were saying, get off the computer and go outside, which, you know, that's still good that kids are getting outside. They're not as outside as much as they used to. But phones are just another tool that helps people. Computers are a tool that help people. So that's one of the things. It's like, no, just let them use their phone. As long as they're not cheating, then you're good. 
right? I've had exams where the professor was like, go ahead, use Google. You're not going to find your answer on there. Well, again, it's just a way of researching things, right? I mean, that's one of the things that I think is cool. Again, I keep talking about it, but the Cyber Patriot program, it's an open book test, right? I mean, you can yeah. use other computers to do the research for you. I mean, and the thing is, James, at the end of the day, isn't that how we work in real life? Yeah. If Google went down or Stack Overflow went down, I might be in a little bit of trouble. Right, because we run against a problem. Boss asks us something we don't know. It's like, first thing you do, Google that stuff. You know, make sure you have an answer for somebody. You don't just leave it, oh, well, I don't know. We definitely do that. And working in teams and all that kind of goes. So so some of the stuff that kids nowadays, like you said, with the phones and things, they work really, really well together. They communicate really, really well, very sophisticatedly using their technology. And you really don't want to discourage that. I mean, I know I have to ask my grandchildren how to do some of the stuff that they do with their phones because I don't get it. I don't understand it because I use it just as an emergency line. Right. Well, <laughs> my car break down because that's how old I am. <laughs> also, if we're not getting familiar with what they're using, who knows? There could be a platform out there that's dangerous, not good for students to be using. And that's something that, you know, we need to understand and know about. Right. That's why schools have certain filters set up. We know yep. that we shouldn't be going to, I'm not going to say the, any right. names of uh, right. the websites, but there are certain ones that had names close to government facilities back when I was a kid. And if you went to that, ooh, you're going to get in some trouble. So obviously we have to be familiar with what students are using because that's what they're going to be using in business. In fact, when I was in fifth grade, my parents considered having me promoted to grade. And the one thing that this teacher said, she's like, no, he has all the knowledge and skills. Uh, I'm just concerned about his handwriting. And I was thinking in my head, they're not going to be using much handwriting in the future. <laughs> and I was right. But You're right. They don't even teach cursive anymore. So like, that so, was a waste of time. Yeah. So my my grandkids can't read cursive. So, <laughs> so anytime you write them a car, they're like, okay, mom, what is this? What yeah. is right. What does this say? Yeah, absolutely. No, I mean, again, the point is, is that the innovation is moving. And these kids are raised with it in their hands and with a lot of access to it. And so I think all of us together, and that's the cool part about the community that we live in and that we're doing, is that we have all of these viewpoints. You have all of these different people coming together and working with these things. But, again, it can't be in some kind of restricted, we got to hold it kind of a thing. Our way is the right way. Your way is the wrong way. Yeah. It really does take all of us working on this and seeing it. And again, that's exactly how you want your work to go as well, right? You want all that diversity. You want all those different yeah. kinds of things coming at it. Because if we're just doing same, 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 we're never going to catch up to the bad guys and be able to no, keep ourselves not. safe. It's just really not going to work out. Yeah, well, that's actually on my team. That's one of the things I encourage i'm like don't work on the same thing over and over again your brain will get stuck in that and you're going to end up either applying it in the wrong area or you're, you're going to suddenly skip a step and everything's going to be broken make sure that you're keeping your problem solving skills diverse right and make sure you're talking to other people get their perspective on something because if you're just internalizing everything right. and it's just coming from your perspective you're not going to be right 100 percent of the time even yeah. if in your head you are, you're not. That's well, again, that's like proofreading your own stuff, right? You proofread your own stuff and you might be missing yep. whole large words because in your head, the way you were thinking it when you wrote it, you had that word there. So you're just skipping over the fact that it's missing. There's lots of cool examples of that when you can give people a whole paragraph with missing letters and your brain just yep. automatically adds them. So if you don't have somebody else doing it and if you don't have different people with different lenses looking at stuff, we're going to be in trouble. 
Yep. So that's why exactly. it's just so important that we get the diversity out there involved in this kind of stuff. And we let kids experiment and we let them game and we get them where they're at. These are all things that are really important. And I know that you believe that, too, because you do volunteer. I mean, so you work real mm-hmm. hard at this all the time and then you do the volunteering work with the kids. And we get a lot out of the whole volunteering piece as well. Right. Seeing yeah. these kids and some of the stuff that they can do and. The fact that you give them a slight opportunity and then they just run with it, it's just amazing. Yeah, I'm hoping that they replace me because I can't do this forever. No, that's exactly (laughs) it. We definitely need them to do that. So you're self-taught and you're educated in this space and you have this really wonderful upward mobile career trajectory. Are there things that you have seen that still surprises you that is sort of, thought of as norm or just misconceptions that people have that just keep surprising you? Just because it worked yesterday means it's going to work today. That is never the case. That mindset I see way too often. This is the way we've done it all the Ah. whole time. So let's keep doing it this way. As the old saying goes, the only constant in this world is change. And people have to realize that things are constantly changing. Yes, it might work today, but sometimes things need to change. So when I'm working with teams or I'm talking to somebody who is a stakeholder in the application, they're like, no, 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 don't change that. You know, keep it because it works now. I'm like, well, you're asking somebody for their social security number as a way for authentication. This is not a work example. <laughs> I've seen this in places. No, I know. Yeah, I got you. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So uh, make that clear. This is not what he sees at work. But what you're yeah. saying is it's an example of where somebody is using an old way of doing something because it was the norm for for years. That was the norm. You know, what's your ID? And you always gave your social security number. So it was in a gazillion and one places. And you have no idea who's keeping track of it or whatever. But those that's an yeah. old policy, right, that had to be replaced. And so that's a real, real obvious one, right? But, I mean, like you said, there's an awful lot of subtle ones where they just keep doing it the same way because it worked yesterday and they're not wanting to move or change. And and that's difficult. I mean, I think probably that's something that you must run into in your line of work all the time because you're kind of going, you're finding a vulnerability and it may be something that's worked for these developers for years and years and years, but now the bad guys are a little more sophisticated. Yep. Yeah, that's one of the things I definitely deal with, especially when it comes to doing things like as simple as upgrades, right? There are certain things that are used with code that are super hard to replace sometimes. And there are things that are integral to the operation of the application. It's something that I run into often. Luckily, as I've been working with these developers over the years, they have gotten significantly better and much more savvy about security. So that's great. It shows that me and my team are having an impact because on a a monthly basis, we do presentations that are specifically geared toward the developer and helping them enhance their skills and not just software development, but also cybersecurity. So you're helping to sort of educate them on the why, why it is that you're coming in here and you're doing these exercises on their stuff and why maybe to change some of their behaviors and do things a tiny bit different. Yeah, It's a cultural thing, right? So, I mean, when people talk about awareness training or awareness piece, they sort of boil it down to just sort of the real world basics of maybe cybersecurity. But I think one of the things that's just prevalent in the industry is people really need to know why we're doing what we're doing. And it's not just because we like to say no or make you change or do something different, right? So it is cultural, right? So especially in what you're doing, because all these developers and stuff are working on all these innovations, 
and all these really cool things that they've put together. And it's kind of their baby, right? <laughs> yeah. Actually, my business mentor, when I was first getting to know him, he, he's a great guy. His name is Mamadou. He's um, he's from Mali. He worked at GE, and now he, he works for uh, I think what company. It's very big, important company. It's it's that consulting firm. I can't think of it off the top of my head, but it's like oh, of course not. He, Deloitte. That's who oh, there we go. But the first thing he told me when we first had our first sit down business mentorship meeting, he was like, James, you can't call somebody's baby ugly. I'm like, but their baby is ugly. He's like, well, there are much better ways to do that, because when you do that, they're going to do the opposite of what you're asking them to do. Right. They go on the defensive, right? Yes, exactly. And that's been a growth element for me is understanding that how to go about communicating these ideas to people and how they can go about changing it. You know, you have to word it in a way that somebody feels you're not critiquing them specifically. You're trying to improve what they've created. So communication skills on top of all the technical things that you have, you also have to have those communication skills to not just to talk to the client and let them know their baby's not ugly. It's just got little problems and we're going to put some glasses on it and it'll be okay. (laughs) (laughs) But also with your team, Obviously, getting that message across about working together and doing what you do, too. You have to work with them and up the management ladder as well. If they don't see the value, if you can't communicate what the value is of what you're doing, then that's not going to be good for anybody either. Oh, yeah. That's a huge thing at GE. So anybody who's thinking potentially to work at the one of the oldest companies in the U.S., GE, you have to keep, okay, does this provide value what I'm doing here? So if you can write down what value it provides from a company perspective, and even better, associate a number to that. Like this prevents us from losing X amount of dollars. That's gold at GE. In a lot of places, too. I think that's, that's the norm for industry across the whole thing. So, I mean, again, so you have the technical skills that you do. You have that inquisitive mindset that you have. Wanting to see behind the, the, you know, the curtain, you have communication skills, you have some business acumen too. So you have to know what's the return on investment for this. You know, if I put X amount of hours into this, where am I going to get? I mean, you know, there are an awful lot of folks who are lovely technicians and nerds like you, which we love and all that scientific and they want to poke and they want to do stuff. But if they're doing it just because they're satisfying their own curiosity and they're not actually helping the business case and they can't communicate that correctly, then they're going to be out the door. <laughs> yeah. Or you're going to have a sit down talk and an improvement plan. So always keep in mind, are you working on your hobby or are you doing your job? Right. And that's the thing, you know, take the other stuff offline if that's not actually something that they want you to be doing. But all in all, these things doesn't sound like just a computer scientist, right, in its purest form. I mean, I think that you brought your music into this. You brought that inquisitiveness into this. Then you got this wonderful degree and you have that expertise. But you've also taught yourself a ton of stuff. And you said, like, you had mentors and other folks that have helped you along the way to get there. And now you're giving back and you are a mentor to folks and your boots on the ground there in the high schools and middle schools. And you and Chris from GE, both of you, anytime I send out the flare and say, I need someone to help me with this or that, you know, in an emergency situation, you guys are there doing that. But it's an exciting field. It's been an exciting ride knowing you guys and what you've been doing and just learning about some of your stories and that kind of stuff. Is there any kind of parting suggestions or career advice or interesting pathways that you think maybe people should start to look into that you want to talk to before we leave today's podcast? I would just say, you know, you'd be great for this field if you have the patience to learn, right? If you have the patience to learn, and I think this goes for any field. If you have the patience to learn, you can do pretty much anything that you want. 
and cybersecurity is no exception. I've got my degree in computer science, which is not cybersecurity. It helps you with cybersecurity, but it is not cybersecurity. They actually have degrees now for that. Back when I was in college, that wasn't much of a thing. So as long as you have the patience to learn, you can certainly do it. And I'll tell you what, it is 100% worth it. I was able to actually pay off my student loans, unlike a lot of my peers, sadly. Or I haven't had to put them in deferment since, uh, you know, maybe two years after I graduated. Since I've worked as a developer slash cybersecurity expert, I haven't really had to worry about, you know, am I going to be able to eat or make a car payment or, you know, pay rent or not have a mortgage? But I don't have to question that anymore. So I want to throw that out there as a motivator for folks that if you've struggled your entire life with, you know, being fed and whatnot, this is a great career to go into. And you won't have to worry about those things because I personally had to have that kind of struggle when I was younger. So um, especially after 9-11, lots of jobs lost. My dad lost his business. Also, medical bills piled up. And I graduated college in 2008. And most of us remember what happened in 2008, which was the Great Recession. So being in cybersecurity has helped me get through all that. It's a skill set that is completely invaluable to companies right now. It truly is. And the pathways are just so varied, right? So you had a ComSci degree and you taught yourself the cybersecurity pieces and then learned and you had mentors and you moved up the chain and now you're giving back and doing with the other people. But life definitely moves people along, right? And like you said, I was in a place where it was the light bill or food for the kids. And when I went into this field, that's no longer an issue. But it took some retooling. It took actually quite a change for me. I went from physical security to cybersecurity. That was a huge uplift, but I took some certifications and I was able to do that. And that's the thing. There's no one way to do this, but there's an awful lot of paths. So folks that are veterans that need to get retooled, people who are in IT and want to be retooled in this, people who are not even in IT can get into this. And then there's so many very different kinds of careers in this thing, too. So yours is highly technical. And you definitely have to have a technical background to do the things that you're doing right now. But I know you work with people that are not highly technical, but are also in this field. The possibilities are limitless, right? And so, you know, you really just have to, like you said, put your mind to it, dedicate yourself to retooling and learning this kind of skills. And then you can kind of name your own pathway, right? I mean, at the end of the day, there's so many opportunities out there. It's been really nice getting to talk with you, James, today. I truly appreciate you carving out a little time from your family life and your busy work schedule and that, so making some time to talk to me and the folks that listen to this podcast. Yeah, it's been great. Thanks for having me, Tamara. I love talking about cybersecurity, especially if I can encourage other folks, because as I said, I can't do this job forever. I have to be able to retire comfortably with knowledgeable folks, hopefully not coming to the rescue, but preventing the fires from breaking out in the first place. So this has been an absolute honor to talk to you. Well, thanks, James. It's been really good. And yes, we want to keep the infrastructure going, want the lights on, want everything to work. When we retire, we don't want to have to worry about any of those kinds of silly things. So that next generation will be the ones that will be able to take care of that for us. And I'm glad that you've been able to share this with us. Thank you so much, James. You've been listening to the Detroit Mercy Cybersecurity 313 podcast. If you would like more information on today's discussion, please contact Center Director Tamara Shoemaker by emailing shoematl at udmercy.edu. And please plan to join us again for the next edition of the Detroit Mercy Cybersecurity 313 podcast.